as we as we dive in this morning, um, I'll be honest with you, I'm completely wiped out. I've been up since 3.45 a.m. reading the latest headlines having to do with the city of Atlanta, particularly an area of the city that's only about a half hour away from my front door. I would employ, implore you not to Google right now if you have no idea of what I'm talking about, to hit the pause button on that till we're on the other side of this service, or at least hit the pause button on the live stream if you just can't help yourself. But something that I would invite us all into, something that I spent several hours with before the sun came up this morning, in my uh, exhaustion strangely coupled with this inability to sleep, the, the only thing I could do was lament. And so I just invite us as a church to do that. There's a lot to lament, uh, even, even if we have to just broaden it out to categories of thinking about what's broken in this world. As we look at the brokenness within us, as we look at the brokenness that surrounds us, there's a both and to lament. We talked about it a couple months back. Lament is the prayer language of the people of God as we journey through a broken world on our way to glory, making up roughly a third of the Psalms. A naming of that which is broken in this world in full disclosure while crying out to God to fix what's broken, asking him what our part to play as instruments of redemption might be and trusting him in the midst of that brokenness to do what he always does, which is to redeem. How long, O oh Lord? That's the question of the psalmist. That's a question that will never stop being applicable until the king returns to set all things right which we can also then declare, amen, come Lord Jesus. We've been saying that a lot as a church lately, and rightly so. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be in verses 16 through 24 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, I'd encourage you to go to uh, esv.org. Um, that's a free website where you can access the translation that we'll be walking through this morning together. It should only take you a matter of, of minutes to access that website. Let me go ahead and, and pray for us, myself, perhaps more than anyone, and we'll jump in and we'll get going this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you needy people. God, we're so much more desperate for you than we have any idea. God, I ask you to, to do a great work in our hearts right now. In, in these moments that we have together as we sit with your word, pray that you would overwhelm us with the riches of your grace that our lives might, might be living proof of the power of the gospel, that you might all the more be, be glorified in us and, and might receive the praise that you so richly deserve. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned a couple weeks ago, before we hit the pause button yet again, to go spend time on a hillside with Jesus last Sunday, that if this were a Netflix series, the, the close of chapter seven would have marked the end of season one. The final episode of that first season ending with Paul's declaration of confidence in the gospel's impact on the church in Corinth. A confidence in the genuineness of their faith. Chapters eight and nine, which is where we sit right now, represent season two, which focuses on gospel-formed generosity. Driving home this idea that God's grace has the power to make hearts full, spilling over into sacrificial giving to, to those in need for the glory of our good, gracious, and righteous King, who himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, going back to last week, 
no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. There's a, there's a throne in the castle of our hearts, you might say, and there's only room for one on that throne. The Apostle Paul understands that one of the evidences that Jesus is truly seated there, it's the posture of open hands. The gospel informing our generosity, bringing us face to face with the radical generosity of God toward us. As recipients of so many blessings in Christ. You heard James speak these words just a few moments ago. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for my sake, he became poor, so that you and I, by his poverty, might become rich. Gospel economics. Jesus didn't give a tenth of himself. He gave all of himself. Taking on the form of a, of a peasant as an act of sacrificial love. Setting aside the privilege of divine glory. Paul talks about that in Philippians 2 beautifully. That he might rescue us from sin and death into this forever family that you and I are a part of. If you're a Christian with a forever inheritance in Christ. What more motivation could we possibly need in, in compelling us to give to the needs of others than the riches of God's grace that have been lavished upon us in Christ Jesus? We don't need shame as a motivator. We don't need guilt as a motivator. Like Zacchaeus, salvation has come to my house. How can I not be generous? This morning's passage picks up where we left off two weeks ago as Paul continues to drive home the wonder of God's grace and the outworking of such grace in the lives of God's people. And we see here this morning that it's about so much more than just money and the giving away of money, though that's part of it. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, verse 19, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this great act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. This morning's passage begins with the words, but thanks be to God. And, and those words will carry us through the entirety of this morning's passage. Rightly so that Paul would begin with those words here in verse 16, because anything redemptive is a work of God's sovereign grace. I mean, it's, it's God who rescued the apostle Paul himself from sin and death on the road to Damascus. You read about that three different places in the book of Acts. A violent hater of all things Christianity happily disrupting family dinners and devotionals, dragging Christ followers from their homes to the local prison until he was hemmed in by a merciful and gracious God and brought to the end of himself. Which is where the light of Christ burns brightest. Where the beauty and supreme worth of Jesus is most visible. Where the grace of God is most overwhelming. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. By grace, Paul went from a blind orphan grabbing around in the darkness to a a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ. A man who went on to plant churches all over the Mediterranean landscape and author more New Testament books of the Bible than any other writer, including, mind you, 2 Corinthians. We wouldn't have this book of the Bible if it weren't for the grace of God. This wouldn't be a sermon series. So we say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God. It's God who rescued Titus into his forever family and established him as an ambassador of the gospel, including the difficult task of taking Paul's letter of rebuke to the church in Corinth, leading to their repentance and renewed faith. We read about that a couple chapters back. It's God who put into Titus's heart, verse 16, an earnest care for the church, fanning into flame this desire to see Jesus' bride flourish. It's God who called this unnamed brother, verse 18, to preach the gospel, equipping him with a gift of preaching so recognizable that he need not be named. A work of grace, think about this, that he does in your life and my life as well. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. That it's God who gives to each and every one of us, as his people, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's God who moves people's hearts to participate in the act of grace of giving to those in need. Verse 19. It's God who works in the hearts of his people, again, verse 19, that that they would carry out his work not for their own glory, Not so that people would talk about how great they are, but for the glory of the Lord himself. So that again, we say, thanks be to God and the work of his sovereign grace. Paul goes on to say in verses 20 and 21, he says, we we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So as to minimize suspicion regarding the integrity of of any one man collecting the offering for the Jerusalem church, Paul surrounds himself with trustworthy brothers in traveling with that money as a way of ensuring that, that all is seen as above reproach in this act of grace. So as not to create an opportunity for anyone to, to bring disrepute on the gospel. That according to verse 21, there's such a thing as honorable conduct that evidences the beauty and truth of the gospel and there's such a thing as dishonorable conduct that gets in the way of the gospel as paul says elsewhere romans 12 17 repay no one evil for evil but give thought paul says to do what is honorable in the sight of all i think for some of us we don't we don't really have a category for this we've read paul elsewhere and we've seen that He and his friends were not at all concerned about the opinions of others in certain ways. You see it in his writings about the dangers of seeking the approval of man. Galatians 1 would be one example. But Paul and his friends were absolutely concerned about the opinions of others when it came to questions regarding their ambassadorship of the gospel. That that there are ways in the midst of all that surrounds us right now, and my goodness, if if that word all... uh, is not mind-blowing 
in this cultural moment, there are ways in the midst of all that surrounds us, be it pandemic-related or injustice-related or both, that we should be less concerned with what others think of us. And there are ways in the midst of all that surrounds us, be it pandemic-related or injustice-related or both, that we should be more concerned with what others think of us as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. I think one of the questions that that we should wrestle with as we look at verse 21, myself included, would be this. Would people say that, that the gospel is actually clearer on the basis of their looking in on your li- life these past few weeks and months? Or are there ways that God might be calling you to repent as it pertains to bringing reproach on the gospel? And I think the safe answer for most of us, myself included, is probably both We should celebrate those moments when our words and lives have have led others to praise our Father in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. And we should also grieve those moments when we've sadly gotten in the way of the gospel. Paul says we, we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. We aim for gospel ambassadorship by God's grace, trusting him to supply that which he demands. So that we can say, praise God that, that, that we're not who we once were and praise God that we're not who we're someday going to be. Again, we, we owe this work of God in our lives that we call progressive sanctification so that we become more honorable in the sight of God and man. We owe that to God's glorious grace to which we again declare with the Apostle Paul, verse 16, thanks be to God. Verse 22, Paul goes on to say, and, and with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. This second unnamed brother is is unknown to us. Scholars have no consensus as to who Paul's talking about here, just like the brother in verse 18 with the recognizable gift of preaching. What we do know is that Paul had an incredibly endearing relationship with Titus. Nowhere else in Paul's writings does he refer to any other colleague as my partner. That word partnership, we we use it as we talk about church membership. It's oftentimes translated as fellowship in the New Testament. In fact, that may be what some of your Bibles say. But that translation actually presents a little bit of a challenge for us because the word fellowship means something very different today than it meant in Paul's day. Most of us probably don't throw around the word fellowship with our non-Christian friends. They would probably poke fun at us for doing that. The word fellowship today carries with it this idea of friendship among believers. That's not what it meant in Paul's day. In Paul's day, it was It was more about the linking of arms for a common cause, which, of course, establishes friendship. D.A. Carson says in his commentaries on 1 and 2 Corinthians, he says, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. For the Christian, that shared vision, as we know, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul declares Titus to be his partner because Titus had given his life to the same cause as the Apostle Paul. 
sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my hope for this church, that, that we would be a people who know something of a shared joy because Jesus is our shared passion above all other passions. On the battlefield, as we fight alongside one another to believe the gospel, and on the mission field, as we co-labor to declare and, and display the, the gospel of the kingdom, going back to last week, again, owing to God's glorious grace without which we would all be sunk. Paul goes on to describe the other two unnamed brothers in verse 23 as messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. A reminder of what he said at the end of chapter three, famous verse, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit, Paul says. In the words of one scholar, by God's grace, we become manifestations of Christ's life-changing glory. And let me, let me say that again. By God's grace, we become manifestations, you and I, of Christ's life-changing glory. Mind-boggling. Thanks be to God. Paul closes out this morning's passage, verse 24, with these words. He says, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Passage ends right where it began with God's grace. Notice that what's honorable in the sight of the Lord and the sight of men, it's, it's not about meriting God's love, doing what's honorable. Embracing a life of sacrificial giving to those in need, it's, it's not about meriting God's love. Those things are proof, verse 24, that the gospel is actually at work in our lives that we've been compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. Going back to chapter five, we've gone there a few times in this series. Such beautiful words, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, Paul says, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Ambassadors doing what's honorable in his sight and the sight of men, not in the pursuit of acceptance, but rather from the position of acceptance that's already ours in Jesus. Hemmed in by his great love, a love expressed in his laying down his life for undeserving sinners like you and me. So that I would ask this morning, do you know the love of Christ? Have you given up on yourself and trying to prove your own value and worth to use that proof language of verse 24? Have you recognized your desperate need for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich? Again, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. I invite you to trust in him in his finished work this morning to declare him to be your savior and your king. And if you are a Christian, if we truly know something of, of the love of Christ ourselves, the outworking of that love, Paul says, will be adorned with adjectives like honorable and generous, self-giving by God's grace. 
I don't know about you, I don't know what your vision is for, for your own life, for your family. I, I so want the Lord and men on the other side of all that surrounds us right now to say of me, to use Paul's words, he aimed at, at what was honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but in the sight of man. He didn't have a reputation for getting in the way of the gospel. Rather, he evidenced the, the beauty and truth of the gospel to the praise of God's glorious grace. Like, like the, the brother famous, verse 18, among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel, that it wouldn't even require the mentioning of, of my name. You know that Peachtree City brother of gospel-formed integrity? May, may each and every one of us want our lives to be that kind of living proof of the power of the gospel and the outworking of God's grace and love so that we, like the Apostle Paul, can give him every drop of, of glory in it all. Declaring, like Paul, where we began this morning, thanks be to God.